0: Hi, this is Frank. First off, I want to thank you for listening to Unhedged, and I want to apologize in advance for the audio quality of the segment you're about to hear. This was done using some prior equipment, which we've since then updated, but I did feel that the subject matter was important enough, and I have an incredibly high opinion of anything that Doug has to say, whether or not I agree or disagree with him, that I thought it important you hear it. So bear with us for the two segments, but again, As we move forward, the audio quality should improve, and we will always consistently have guests as strong as Doug on the show. Thank you again for being a listener. Hello, and welcome to Unhedged, a candid discussion of markets and mechanisms. I am your host, Frank Troyes, a 25-year-plus veteran of the markets, both bull and bear. Joining me on the show are market participants, ranging from hedge funds to fintech, and as diverse and eclectic a group as winemakers and priests. All of us, like you, asking the same question we all do when we turn on the TV nowadays. Why? Unhedged is a weekly podcast, and on occasion a bi-weekly podcast, based on the subject matter. You can subscribe to Unhedged through iTunes. As always, your feedback is appreciated, both good and bad. So let's get started. Today's broadcast is brought to you today by Oracle. Oracle helps customers develop roadmaps, migrate to the cloud, and take advantage of emerging technologies from any point. These include new cloud deployments, on-prem environments, and hybrid implementations. Oracle's approach makes it easy for companies to get started in the cloud and even easier to expand as business grows. For more information, go to sohocap.com unhedged, and we can provide free cloud credits to our listeners. And on that sponsorship note Doug what have you what's been keeping you busy
1: Well you know the last couple of days I've really been excited about obviously what's happening in Japan with the yen Japan's been on vacation but uh, dollar yen took a huge tumble yesterday and uh, you know that's been rather exciting to watch one, one of the things that's very interesting for foreign exchange guys is the fact that the, um, we're finally seeing volatility return after maybe a 10 year hiatus and so nights like last night they've been few and far between, but hopefully the currency markets will pick up just as the equity markets have in terms of uh, volatility, and that's a great thing for those that like to trade FX.
0: Now, Doug, just to go back, you know, for, for, for listeners who might not be aware of this, so you and I have had the pleasure of being on air on television a few times, and I recall a few months ago we talked to, uh, to your credit, um, you know, what what the central bank has tried to do there, what type of signaling they've, they've tried to put out there. Has any of this worked, or has the market just basically said, screw it, we're not interested in anything you're trying to do from a policy perspective?
1: Well, what the market's looking at is they look at what did the Fed say when they got into things like quantitative easing and when they started cutting rates. And when the Fed did that, they said they they wanted to increase the wealth effect, which essentially meant bump up stocks and bump up housing. And now the Fed's turning around and they're reducing the balance sheet, they're raising rates. But the fed saying, no, no, this shouldn't affect anything. Well, the reality is, I think the market's looking at their statements prior to the action and they're putting the mirror image on that, which means that we should expect that instead of folks going, uh, reaching out the, the risk, uh, risk ladder, which we saw over the last 10 years, now folks are thinking, maybe I should get out of the, some of the risks that I've had, the riskier type assets. Riskier assets would be high yield. It would be emerging markets. And uh, you're seeing pullbacks there, which is why you've been seeing. Disconnects now in in a lot of different spaces, but also that means that, you know, what happened at the time that the Fed said, let's have a very accommodative policy. Well, buybacks were all the rage for, for corporations who could then issue debt and use that to buy back their stocks. Well, if rates are rising, you'd expect the opposite to happen. So maybe buybacks will stop, which means you see equities start to get hammered. And, you know, I think that we're going to see a lot more of this and it's, it's not going to be quite as simple as the Fed expects. And I think the market now understands that it's not simple at all. The Fed just needs to play catch up.
0: Well, it, 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 to go back here for a second to to where we started in terms of the Japan trade. So I, 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 one of the quotes you said a while back, and I've, I've always loved to plagiarize it, is that dollar yen was always the widow widowmaker uh, in, in the currency markets. And and again, going back to, to some of the signaling that they were, they were doing in terms of targeting and, and how the market perceived that, that in fact that, you know, you know, heaven forbid there might be a positively sloped yield curve in, in Japan. Um, is, is that working? So, I mean, to your point, if, if we're looking at now in the U.S. equity markets, folks saying, and again, maybe I'll paraphrase what you said in a more cynical way that, you know, what, what is, you know, what earnings were truly there? Uh, is this now an opportunity for folks to start looking at the Japanese markets and, and based on, A, what we're seeing from the central bank and, B, and the markets in general as they, they start to look at maybe potentially de-risking their portfolios?
1: Well, let's just look at last night as an example. Japanese yen, most of it's traded or a large portion of it is actually traded by retail investors. It's what uh, the market calls Mrs. Watanabe. And Mrs. Watanabe looks for yield trades. So one of the most popular is maybe long Aussie short yen or long Turkey short yen. They're, look, they're, they're going at the yield curve and making currency bets, much as in the U.S. folks will take bets in equities. In, in Japan and in, in Asia, a lot of folk take bets in currencies and they look for the yield plays. Now, people have been very, very uh, relaxed, complacent even when it comes down to dollar yen trading. They've always expected, well, U.S. rates are higher in, in the U.S. than they are in Japan. So long dollar yen is always going to make you money, especially given that the Japanese have a go by the G10 to allow their currency to weaken and push for weaker currency in order to make their economy stronger. Mm -hmm. And they're the only country in the G10 that, in the G20 that has that, that, that ability. So there's been a complacent view of long, high yielding currencies versus short the Japanese yen. Last night during the holiday, that complacency blew apart. During that, during a very uh, thin liquidity time. And, and the reason is because U.S. yields have essentially, you know, collapsed in the last couple of days or in the last couple of weeks as you've seen, uh, equity markets, you know, start jumping all over the place. And that meant that the yield play is less exciting now than it was before. You see Aussie yen go through stops in very low liquidity when there's really very few folks working on the bank desks at that time, because it's the kind of switchover between New York and and Australia. And so in that time, you see that this down move in dollar yen that was rather aggressive. Obviously, it's come back a little bit since then. But the exciting part here is that it's not a one-way bet anymore. Currencies aren't a one-way bet. And what's really exciting about the Fed now is Fed isn't a one-way bet either. Forever it was on hold, or else it was just in a cutting mode. And now we're at these, these times where we're thinking, well, the Fed could be in hold at the next meeting. Maybe they could raise rates. The Fed says they'll raise rates. But at the same time, the market's saying they're going to start cutting rates in 2019. So there's a lot of excitement. Now, in Japan, though, I think there's less excitement in the Japanese market. But I think that that's because the Japanese central bank has made it very, very clear. They want to remain accommodative, that they're watching things closely. Japan does a lot of watching. I think there's one thing that we can be very sure about, and that is that there will not be any multilateral intervention in dollar-yen to push it back up off of this 106.50 level because the U.S. is not interested in a stronger dollar. And so while the Japanese may want to have a weaker yen going forwards, guess what? The President of the United States also wants a weaker dollar.
0: Well, you you, you hit on something there that I think, and, and again, not too... Uh, use the Yogi Berra quote, but I will, you know, the, the, the deja vu all over again effect where it, it, it's it been a bit of a conundrum and, and you and I have spoken about this a lot. And to your credit, you've done a better job of it than I have, that, that this administration absolutely has almost no incentive for a stronger dollar. Um, and, and, and the irony of Trump's volatility actually plays well into that, you know, to the degree that in some respects we have an irrational actor there, but how are they going to pull it off in light of the fact that you've got Powell, who's been under you know enormous political pressure from 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 the executive branch, uh, but at the same time, in terms of the credibility of the Fed, uh, you know, on the one hand, he's got the, he's got the lever where he can increase rates, in which he has, and two, you know, where they're stepping back in terms of their their own QE policy. Um, does Powell have any room here, or 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 you know, because it, it, again, the other question I would have for you is. How much of this is going to be Powell putting his foot in the ground and saying, I'm not going to move here. I need to validate to the market that we are, in fact, independent from the executive branch. But at the same time, to your point, you know, the states do need a weaker dollar. They, they need something else to goose up the economy.
1: Well, to be fair, it's not just the U.S. that needs a weaker dollar. It's the emerging markets need a weaker dollar, too. Remember, the stronger the dollar becomes, the harder it becomes for emerging economies to pay back their U.S. dollar debt, which has grown considerably over the last 10 years. And so and so, on the back of that, the stronger the dollar becomes, the more volatility we'll see across the globe, not just in the U.S. Now, why does Trump want a weaker dollar? He wants a weaker dollar because he believes manufacturing needs to come back to America. People don't manufacture in America because they know if they manufacture in a country outside of it, then the, the labor there will be cheaper in a year's time, five years' time, 20 years' time because other countries have weak currency policies. In fact, it's the only, US, it's only the U.S. that ever talks about wanting a strong currency. Every other country wants a weaker currency because they want to export manufacturing goods. And so the U.S. has been really good over the past, I don't know, 20 years since Lloyd Benson in exporting U.S. Treasury bills. But this president says, look, exporting Treasury bills doesn't pay for things that we want in the U.S. like uh, taxes. Obviously, we can raise money, but then we're in debt to other people. If you give someone a job, that person pays for taxes. And we don't have the debt issue. So that's sort of been what he's been pushing. Obviously, he's pushing up against Powell. And Powell, certainly, if you were really to break this down, I would say that Powell has been behind the curve and Trump's actually been ahead of the curve. Two months ago, Trump was saying the economy's too weak. Fed shouldn't be raising rates. Today, everyone's clamoring and saying the economy's too weak. The Fed shouldn't be raising rates. Even Fed members today have been chit-chatting about how yeah, they think we should be on hold at the next meeting, as opposed to a week ago when they were saying, "Look, you know, let steady as she goes." So I think that the Fed is now taking notice. It's not going to be Powell that ends up talking about it. Rather, you'll find other folks in the Fed administration come out and start chit-chatting about maybe they should be on hold. They'll throw out trial balloons. Once these trial balloons become the mantra in the economy, then Powell isn't bowing to pressure. Instead, he's just going with what the market's telling him. And so Powell doesn't worry about the pressure, but he does have to set out the trial balloons before he he does something. It's much like Theresa May when it comes to Brexit. I'm sure that she would actually secretly like to have a second referendum, but instead she swears off it, we'll never do that, because that would obviously hurt her and her negotiating. But different members of her cabinet will go out there and they'll talk about referendum, referendum, referendum. The more times we see it from cabinet members, the more times we know that's just trial balloons, and at some point, someone's going to try and say, "Yeah, that's a good idea," and then she'll change her view.
0: Let's, let's drill down into one of the earlier points you made. The the when we when we talk about the U.S. economy, and, and obviously we're going to have a non-farm payroll number coming up soon that we're going to have a chance to look at, and how how. Real? Do you feel that that strength in the U.S. economy is where you know? On the one hand, I'll I'll talk to economists and they'll say to me, you know, this thing is a charade. It's it's been a function of you know corporate buybacks and and and. Um, but at the same time, there's enough anecdotal consumer data, especially even off of uh, you know this this holiday season. That's indicating that the consumer is coming back. And I had another hedge fund I was talking to where, where they cynically said, hey, all he needs to do is relax the, re- the regulations that were there after GFC and start giving the consumers access to credit again. And this, you know, it's game over. You know, the consumers will just go out and replicate what they did in 2007, 2008. So question you, I mean, how how real is this recovery? Because to, to your point, if it is a real recovery, uh, one could argue that Powell should keep both – variables in, raise rates, keep QE, you know, tapering on QE. Then on the other side, if, if the recovery or rally has been somewhat fictional, then I think there is a lot of validity to say, you know, he should be stepping back on both or at least one of them uh, in terms of slowing down the economy. I,
1: I think the biggest problem that most folks have, and economists as well, and the Fed, the administration, everyone looks at the stock market and says, that's the economy. So if the stock market goes down, people say the economy is weak. The stock market goes up, the economy is strong. And the reality is GDP is largely irrelevant to the ups and downs of the, of the economy, of the stock market. Mm -hmm. And so certainly stocks have come off, but GDP is not coming off. Durable goods aren't collapsing. The employment numbers aren't going off the charts. Obviously we're seeing weakness in places like housing, but that's also because a lot of the buyers that used to buy homes, for example, in China and Russia now because of certain restrictions can't. And so the high end real estate is taking a bomb or is collapsing, but it's collapsing because those high-end buyers aren't there anymore. And so that skews the median and it skews the mean. And so it makes it look like we're seeing lower prices. But certainly on the, the, the mid-range type real estate, you're not seeing much of a change. And whether you're in the West Coast or the East Coast, and I just came back from the West Coast, people don't seem to be very concerned about the economy right now. They're concerned about their 401k, but it's a very separate issue. Mm-hmm. And what will happen is the Democrats going into 2020 will say, well, the economy equals the stock market. And what the Republicans have done so far is they were pushing when the, econ- when the stock market was going up that they were both the same thing. And they're going to have to turn around and say, well, look, that's not the same thing. Because obviously whether someone's doing a billion-dollar buyback of their stock is irrelevant uh, regarding the GDP of the U.S. You don't say, look, GDP is going up. I'm going to buy more of my stock. And mm-hmm. that's what – but, but Certainly, we've seen a lot of folks borrowing to buy back their stock, and whether interest rates are higher or lower, that's not going to change that sort of mentality until they change how you know, chief executives are paid based on the stock price.
0: hmm It's interesting. And how much, it you know, to your point on the California market, how how much of the the wealth effect do you think consumers have in their 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 minds now? Because you, you go back again to '07 and '08 to your point on the 401ks. Um, there, there was a wealth effect in terms of their ability, to, I, tragically, to borrow against that and declare it as an asset because they, everybody was doubling down on real estate. Do, do you really think that the, the American consumer now – I, I want to just go back to that point. Do you, do you really feel the American consumer is viewing their 401K now as a separate asset that that could technically no longer be leveraged for a real estate play?
1: No, I think that, no, I think that folks look at their 401Ks, East Coast and West Coast, and they think, you know what? I'll look at this again in 10 years' time. Now, CNBC tries to get everyone excited about how their 401k is done in the last 10 minutes. I think the average person doesn't really care. Now, California is a completely different country compared to the East Coast. In California, they don't really think about what's going on in, in, in Washington. In fact, they kind of push against it. You know what? Because Absolutely. There, there's very little, and you know, if they could secede, I'm sure they all would. And, and I think that they put, They they think much more about innovation. Obviously, you know, I was coming, I was in Orange County and up and down the Bay Area. And so their folks are thinking much more about their own stock in their own startups. At least the folks that I was talking to, obviously not everyone has a startup, but they're not really thinking about where's the stock market in general because they think of that as being the old economy and California is trying to push itself as being the new economy, whether it's renewables or whether it's, you know, startups. So I think that folks obviously have done very well in real estate. On the West Coast, much more so, I think, than on the East Coast. But I think that you know, the four hundred one k or the staring of the four hundred one k is very much a CNBC sort of pushed idea as opposed to a reality.
0: Good stuff. Well, Doug, on that though, let, let's do this. I think, uh, in the spirit of giving our listeners a, a quick break, why don't we break there shortly and, and come back to this? And I think, to your point, we uh, we can have some fun talking about uh, Jerry Brown and the, the as you mentioned, uh, California is a separate country and economy. And uh, for our listeners, we'll be right back with our second segment.